Welcome to PNC C-Speak, the language of executives. I'm John Bernstein, Regional President of PNC Bank in New England, alongside my co-host, Carolyn Jones, Market President and Publisher of the Boston Business Journal. Thanks, John. It's great to be with you on PNC C-Speak. Each podcast features local executives talking about relevant and timely business topics. This knowledge sharing platform showcases leaders with forward-thinking approaches that disrupt the status quo and cause us to think differently. Our guest today is Dr. Lauren Solitar, CEO of the May Institute. Lauren, it's great to have you with us today on this special version of PNC C-Speak. Thank you so much. I'm really thrilled to be here. We're recording this session today in early April and it's Autism Acceptance Month. It would be great if we could start, if you could share a little bit about the efforts to raise awareness for autism and also both why the business community should care about this issue and what are the ways that we can get engaged. Sure. I think I just want to start with how the name has transitioned from Autism Awareness Month to Autism Acceptance Month. And really sort of the transition occurred because we want more than just awareness. Awareness is wonderful and it's great, but we really want inclusion, acceptance. We want individuals with autism to be accepted and part of every community in Massachusetts as well as across the country. And there's a lot of great opportunities now, I think, in particular for individuals with autism to be involved in the business communities, for business communities to sort of take a step back and look at how can individuals with this neurodiversity really have an impact on their businesses and how they can contribute to really enhance what everyone is doing day to day. Lauren, thank you for that insight on the subject. And I wonder if you can also share with us a little bit more about the May Institute, its work, its mission, and perhaps its history. Sure, I'd love to. May Institute was founded in 1955 by Dr. Jacques and Marie-Anne May. They had twin boys with autism spectrum disorder. And at the time, the only services for education or for any intervention was institutionalization. And the Mays decided that this was really not a treatment of choice for their boys and so opened a school and a program for children with autism spectrum disorder. That school was in Chatham, Massachusetts. And over the last 68 years we have grown now, we have 140 service locations at May Institute. We're in six states across the country. We serve over 2000 people through our consultation in schools. We impact probably close to 50,000 children a year. So we do have a really wide breadth and depth of services. We have operational services in three areas. So we have educational services. We have six schools. Two of our schools have residential programs. We provide homeschool and center-based programs for young children with autism spectrum disorder across the country. And then in the 80s, we actually expanded into adult services. And so we provide services across the lifespan for individuals and for children starting before three and then many of them who stay with us, you know, throughout their entire lifetime. I just want to talk just for a minute about sort of what distinguishes May from other similar organizations. One is the lifespan issue that we individuals can have services with us throughout their lives. So there's seamless transitions. The other, I think, important factor is May is founded and uses evidence-based practices. So everything we do is based on research. It's based on the newest science. We collect data on all the individuals that we serve and use it to inform all of the care that we provide, whether it's educational, whether it's clinical, developing a new service, everything we do is integrated. So we use interdisciplinary teams to inform all that we do. 
I wonder if maybe let's talk a little bit about you and the May. You've been there also for 27 years and you started in 1996 as the chief psychologist and vice president of clinical services. So maybe take us through to your current role as CEO. It's um, been a great and surprising trajectory, I'd have to say. So I did come to the May as a vice president and the chief psychologist. And then over the course of the next few years, my scope expanded and I took on all of behavioral health services. We had some consultation with hospitals down in the southeastern part of the state. And then in 2010, I actually was promoted into the role of chief clinical officer. And at that time, I really oversaw all of the clinical services across the organization, which really broadened my role and really gave me a pulse on everything happening across May Institute. I'm a psychologist by training, so I thought this was going to be my career sort of trajectory till I retire. And then a year later, the CEO at May Institute was retiring and I was approached by the CEO and the board of directors and asked if I would like to move into the role as a president and chief executive officer. Over the course of my career, I actually shifted, you know, I did a lot of clinical work, but then I began to shift more into management and found that my clinical training, and I was also trained as a research psychologist and the sort of my research perspective in terms of using data really helped in terms of management and data is data. So whether you're looking at clinical data or financial data, as long as you know how to read it and understand it and know the questions to ask, it's not that dissimilar. And so I think my background and training really helped me get into the current role that I'm in. I wonder, just as a follow-up to that, if you could reflect a little bit on the changes that you've seen throughout your time as CEO, and then perhaps maybe follow that with just what you're most proud of and where do you aspire to see both the organization and or the field go? Yeah, great question. We utilized evidence-based practices at May, and one of the evidence-based practices is behavior analysis. And that's a young field that is changing over time. And at May, one of the things that we're always looking at is sort of what's the newest, what's the best, what has the best evidence, and really looking at how to integrate behavior analysis with all the other specialties. So we include what is newest in speech and language pathology, because autism is a disorder where there's speech and language communication difficulties, as well as social difficulties and some behavioral difficulties. So we're always looking at how do we integrate speech, OT, PT, psychology, psychiatry, sort of all of the fields and really coming up with an sort of an integrated person-centered, family-centered approach. Probably what I'm most excited about over the last several years, and especially since I moved into my role, is that I've really made a concerted effort to sort of recruit the best and the brightest from around the country. So, and that's for every field. So there's the clinical aspect, but really for the entire organization, we're really looking at developing centers of excellence. So it could be clinical, it could be operational, it could be human resources, financial, all the support departments, you know, whatever we do and all the lives that we touch, I feel like really need to be impacted by excellence. A great team is everything for sure. Lauren, that's an inspiring leadership path. But please, could you talk a little bit about what was your first reaction when you were approached to be CEO? Were you expecting or aspiring to be there? I was shocked. <laughs> I have to say I was flattered, of course, you know, and then of course you have a moment of, oh my goodness, like 
can I do this? This is a big organization. It's very diverse. It's spread out both across the Commonwealth, but across the country. And I always loved learning. And so throughout the course of my career, I always felt like I was taking on new responsibilities, learning more, doing a lot of research. And so I thought, well, here's another opportunity. And from a personal level, the timing worked out. My youngest child was going off to college. And I thought, I'm going to have so much free time. What am I going to do? <laughs> Even though he was pretty independent by that point. And I thought, I thought it was just a great opportunity. I should tell you, once I was promoted into the role, I did call my former financial analyst to work with me at May many moons ago, and she had become the CFO at another organization. And I said, guess what? And she gave her notice the next day and she came back to work with me as the CFO. So it was really started just to create this wonderful team. Were there specific skills or items that, that you drew on in your past that prepared you to move away from your clinical responsibilities to oversee a rich and diverse array of programs that exist in the May and this $140 million organization that you started to run? Well, when I did clinical work, because I was trained as a research psychologist, I always used data to inform what I was doing individually with individuals, with families, with couples. And so I think that was one of the greatest things that I was able to take and really transition to being a CEO and having to really look at and balance what is the clinical needs of every individual that we're serving. And this is a very diverse population. There's not a one size fits all answer. So how do I look at what every person and every family needs and then make sure that when we're providing an intervention or education or habilitative service that there is an impact. How do I look at and assess impact? And so I was able to sort of think about on a, using sort of the smallest scale data systems I used with individuals. How do I take that and apply it and expand it to an organization so I can look at the data that I needed in order to make the best decisions possible? And that's you know, there's, that's financial data, obviously. So looking at financial data, it's looking at workforce data, it's looking at staffing data, it's looking clinically at a lot of different data points, it's looking at operational data. And so I figured out sort of what are the metrics that I need in order to have the information necessary to make good decisions. The other piece of it I do think is, you know, learning how to work with people. As a psychologist, you, you're trained to sort of work with a broad range of individuals and families and learning how to talk to people, but learning how to be a really good listener, I think. And I think probably the other skill that I brought was um, being a really good problem solver. <laughs> I always say I may not have the answer and I know what I know, but I also know what I don't know. So I may not have the answer, but I do know and I have worked a lot with families and individuals on how to problem solve and I do know how to problem solve. So I'm I think I'm good at putting a team together, sort of figuring out sort of what we need to do and put up to a point because you have to stop at a point and then make and then making the best decision possible and then implementing it. And then again looking at the feedback and taking it. And sometimes it's really good. And sometimes people are, you know, it's like, oh, okay, this was not exactly the way it should have gone. And I'll take a step back and Look at all the new information and data, think about it and integrate it and push it out. So I love working with a really great team. And I think a good leader brings in great people who are really 
bright and smart and have skill sets that you don't have and who can really sort of help you think about sort of all the different positions and the different impact you can have based on sort of how you move forward. Lauren, let's talk a little bit more about the critical work that you do. You know, the prevalence of autism in children seems to be an ever-changing number. And just last week, and according to the CDC, one in 36 children has been identified with autism spectrum disorder or ASD. Why is that number going up? And to what do you attribute the higher incidence? That is a great question. That's the million dollar question we say. I think this there, it's a multifaceted answer. So I think first and foremost is increased awareness. So parents have much greater awareness and are, you know, are really looking and assessing their children. And I can tell you every parent here at the May Institute comes to me and asks, you know, my child isn't doing this quite yet. What do you think? Or my grandchild's not doing this. So there's definitely increased awareness that families have increased awareness that pediatricians have. So that's really important that pediatricians now are looking for, looking at screening for autism. In 2008, the American Academy of Pediatrics recommended screening for autism spectrum disorder at 18 and 24 months. So that's happening. And the CDC has a milestone app also for families that they can get online that starts at two months. So if families really are feeling somewhat anxious or just want to sort of have something to compare milestones to, which is in a band, there's not an exact date, they can uh, use that. So that's increased awareness, increased screening. I think another area that's had an impact is improved diagnostic assessments. So we have better, more refined diagnostic assessments. And we have assessments now that are much more culturally sensitive and primary language sensitive. So I think that has allowed the autism community to expand its reach and be more inclusive of everybody, regardless of language and culture and background. So I think that's had an impact. I think another area is changes in diagnostic criteria. So in, in 2013, when the DSM-5 was published, Asperger's disorder was folded into autism spectrum disorder, which is a spectrum with a very, very wide range of symptoms and functioning. And that sort of expanded then the breadth of who falls into that category. So that had, a, I think, a very significant impact on why the numbers have gone up. And then I do think there's been an increase too. I think there's, as people are getting older and other people who become adults with autism have children, they may have children with autism, or families are having a second child and there's a much higher chance of having another child with autism if you have one child with autism. So I think that's all impacted the field as well. And then I wonder if you can also talk a little bit about early detection and why it's so important. Critical. Early identification and early detection is really critical in autism spectrum disorder. All of the evidence and all of the research shows that the, the earlier you're able to intervene, teaching skills, education, sort of the greater the trajectory is for the child, the better the trajectory is. They're able to learn language sooner and some way of communicating. And that's really critical for learning is figuring out a way to communicate. Another important factor is that your brain, there's much more elasticity in your brain when you're younger and it's easier to learn. So that's another reason. And children have shorter learning history, so you don't have to unlearn certain things and then relearn them. So in this field, it's really critical to have early identification and early detection. And again, one of the, I think, limiting factors is just the there's not any the shortages in BCBAs and professionals who can pro provide the interventions and the services for these children. 
That's great. Well, hopefully uh, some of the information you've shared with us today will uh, get this out to the broader community and they can all be on the lookout and uh, advocating for the work that you do. So thank you. What's something that people get wrong or don't know about autism? Well, there was thought A that it was due to having like a cold rejecting parent, which is absolutely, there's no research or evidence whatsoever for that. There's a thinking that these are children who don't want to interact, have no interest in people, that their behavior and their actions are very purposeful. I think that those are all myths. I think the fact that a number of these children can't communicate vocal verbally, it's devastating for a parent, for the child. I mean, imagine not being able to just share and communicate your basic needs. And so communication is first and foremost. I mean, that is something that we think about as soon as we evaluate or see a child is sort of how to help that child figure out a way to communicate. Sometimes it, it is verbally and we're able to you know, help a child learn how to speak. Other times it's using sign language and other times it's using a communication device, but that's always critical. Looking at a child's behavior there's a reason, like you have to think about what is the function of this behavior? Why is a child acting this way? What's in the environment that is sort of motivating a behavior where you can tell that they're stressed? So then how do you look at the environment or the people in the environment and help them shift and change so you can promote and help kids relax and enjoy what they're doing and learn how to be independent and learn adaptive skills? I think those are all really critical issues. Yeah, very, very important. Lauren, you know, working in your field and any field, but your field in particular provides many challenges, both for you, your clients, your staff. And strong leaders are often defined by how they lead and inform when they're faced with major obstacles or challenging issues. Would you say that this applies to you and maybe talk a little bit about that? I would say it definitely does, <laughs> without a doubt. There's challenges every day. I mean, we're, we're you know, we are working with human beings who have significant needs. And every day we need to be cognizant and thoughtful and loving and kind and think about sort of how to help them help individuals meet their needs, but also how to help them have the best quality of life and the greatest level of independence and experience joy and be able to be out in the communities with their families and make friends and all the things that what's considered more neurotypical individual is going to do. So we are always looking at resources and what we need to get the work done. And that's a struggle, I have to say. So just ensuring we have the funding to have the resources in order to meet the needs of all these individuals. So that's one area. And then the workforce challenges I talked about clearly are another. And as I mentioned, during the pandemic in particular, as things were shutting down, we had to stay open. I mean, our residences had to be staffed and we needed to take care of people 24-7. Our ABA centers needed to be open. And so we had a COVID task force. We had COVID teams. We met at the beginning of every single day to sort of figure out what are the needs? How can we address the needs? How do we get at the beginning? How do we get PPE? Like we, I mean, we had some gloves and we had masks that we used, but we were up in the middle of the night calling China, like calling other, you know, people in other countries to try to get, get resources and get equipment that we needed. So we do a lot of work in teams. We bring together, or I bring together sort of the leaders in our organization, depending on what we're focusing on and we'll work on an issue and stay very focused until we feel like we've resolved it and then we move on to the next issue. Lauren, in your field as leader of a growing organization, what makes you worry and what are you optimistic about? 
I worry about filling all my shifts. <laughs> that I would say if you ask anyone's workforce, I mean, I, I worry about workforce because people, I mean, we have six special education schools. We need teachers and there's a shortage of teachers. There's a shortage of special ed teachers. There's a shortage of severe special ed teachers and people are leaving their field. We are educating children. Like we need fabulous educators. So that's one area. We need direct support professionals. We need people to sort of work in our schools together with the teachers to provide the services. We need staff and great employees to work in our residences in our day habilitation program. One of our schools is for children with neurobehavioral disorders and brain injury. I mean, we need a lot of specialists and specialties and I worry that there're not going to be enough people to do the work that we need. That's definitely I would say our my largest worry. I feel like we know what to do and we can do a great team approach and we know how to do it really well and we know how to replicate our programs and how to open really successful new programs. But, you know, I'm just worried there aren't people to do it. I'm excited about the potential for growth. There's a large need and we are exceptional and really excellent. And uh, I think we can provide really great, integrative, compassionate care. And so I'm excited that we can do it. I'm excited at all the innovation and new development and assistive technology that comes out all the time. There's always something new and exciting, and we're always looking at the research and integrating it in what we do day to day. So that's what I'm most excited about, I would say. We like to close with some rapid fire questions. So off the top of your head, are you ready? We'll see. It's <laughs> yeah, the fun part. I'm a thoughtful person. I like to think things through. So we'll, we'll see how this goes. What did you want to be when you grew up? Uh, an attorney or a teacher. I'm neither. <laughs> or both in many ways, right? True, true. What are you currently reading and or watching? I am plowing through all of the Taylor Jenkins Reads books. So I just finished Daisy Jones and the Six, and I'm up to Malibu Rising, which I really liked. And I did watch Daisy Jones and the Six on TV. And I'm also simultaneously reading a Demon Copperhead, the new Barbara King Salper book. I read and the book falls like on my face at night because I'm so tired. <laughs> I have to go back and reread things. <laughs> Who's a Boston leader or an organization that we should watch? My Institute, of course. <laughs> What's your favorite spot in the city? Probably the seaport, I would say. Being out near the seaport, I just think the water and the view. I, I would say the seaport. What makes you laugh? My kids, without a doubt. My family, my kids. They're great. And finally, what's a wish you have for Boston? To continue to grow and be healthy and for all the businesses to come back and to have a vibrant community and really affordable housing for people so they can stay here and live here. And that wraps up another episode. Thank you so much for joining us, Lauren, and for sharing your insights. Thank you so much for having me. It was really great. It's been terrific. I'm John Bernstein. And I'm Carolyn Jones, and this is PNC C-Speak, the language of executives. Our guest today was Dr. Lauren Solitar, CEO of the May Institute. You can find C-Speak at bizjournals.com backslash Boston or on any of your favorite podcast platforms. Until next time. Music.